0: Amen. Amen. If you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. first class for the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality class. It was really a powerful time. It was so good I spilled coffee all over my shirt. I don't know what happened, but uh, yeah. but We had a great time, and if you didn't get a chance to make it today, you can come next week. Uh, You can jump right into the second class. We'd love to have you. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we'll be today, verses 1 through 6. Hear the reading of God's word. And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. 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 This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, A Worthy Walk. A Worthy Walk. Let's pray before we jump into the text. Father, thank you again for who you are and what you do and how you have worked in our life already. God, we ask as we come to your word today that you would continue your work by the power of your spirit. Change us today. Change us more and more into the image of Jesus that we might shine, shine to bring glory to your name. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, I uh, tried to get back into running, and there's been a couple of these restarts in my life. Every, every couple of years, I have to get back into exercising and running and trying to take care of myself and, and be healthy, and, and this was one of those times, and it, it was one of those times that had been quite a bit of time since the last time I had been running consistently, and so I had lost my running shoes. I, I didn't know where they were couldn't find them. I I couldn't run in in regular everyday shoes. So I decided, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I got to go get some shoes. I got to go buy some shoes. And a friend told me that there was a new store in town that actually specialized in running shoes. So I'd never heard of something like that. And I decided, okay, I'll go check it out, see if they could help me. And I show up to this store and walk in and, and the salesman is, you know, he's waiting, ready to pounce on you and ask you questions. And so he, he jumps right to the front door and says, how can I help you? What are you looking for? And I said, well, I don't really know what I'm looking for. And he said, well, how about you jump on our machine? And I didn't know what he's talking about. I'm like a machine for shoes. I mean, what, what are you talking? I was confused. And, and he said, no, no, we, we've got a machine that will help custom fit the shoe to you. And I said, "Okay, well, that sounds interesting, So I look at the machine, and it's basically a treadmill with some cameras, and they've got some kind of software, I don't know, but but they are basically watching you run. and so i I get on the treadmill and and uh, I start to run, and he says, "I need you to run for about a minute, and then we're going to look at it." So I start running and I'm waiting, and and a minute goes by, and then we stop, and he pulls me over to the to the little screen next to the treadmill, and he walks me through how all my, my angles line up and, and how my foot rolls when I hit the ground and, and where the pressure is in my foot and all these things about my feet and the flaws in my feet that I didn't even know were there. Wow. And, and as, as he's describing this to me, he says, I've got the perfect shoe for you. And he walks over and he gets this shoe off the wall and he says, this will fit your foot perfectly. Perfectly. Yeah, how much that shoe costs? Exactly. <laughs> that was my first thought. And so I, I said, okay, let me try them on. Let, let me see if this is really what you say it is. And sure enough, they fit perfect. I won't tell you how much they cost, but, but they fit perfect. There, there, there's this word at the center of Ephesians that has a similar idea. And actually, Ephesians, the whole book, centers on this one word that we find right here in this passage in chapter 4, and the word is axios. Say axios. Axios. It's a Greek word, and uh, the word is often translated worthy. And and it's actually right here in in verse 1 in chapter 4, he says, walk in a manner worthy. And that word right there is axios. And, and it comes from this ancient idea of, of a balancing scale. And so in the ancient world, you had a, a beam that would go across and a, it'd be balanced on a post and you have two pans, one on each side, right? And on one end of the, of the balance, you would have uh, maybe a, a lead weight. May, let's just say it's a pound, okay? And on the other side, you would have nothing. And And if you were selling, let's say, flour, you would pour the flour out on the pan and You would keep pouring it until it leveled out and balanced and then you had a known weight that's the lead and you had an unknown weight that's the flour and as soon as they became balanced now you knew the weight of the flour and when they got into balance the word that they used was axios it meant that they had the same value the same worth in other words they they were the perfect fit for one another And the word was often used for things that could be completely different, right? Nothing could be different than lead and flour. And yet when they are in balance, they're the perfect fit. They have worth. They're they're worthy of one another. And so in Ephesians, Paul uses this word to describe the church's balance, the the church's fit, our, our axios And when he talks about it, this is what the two things are. He says, you're calling from God, and now you're walking with God. He says, you've been called into this relationship with God, and that's the whole first half of Ephesians. Paul is, is describing in detail what it means to be called by God into a relationship with Jesus, and how that relationship with Jesus really transformed everything about who you are. And since God has called you into that relationship, now He says you're to walk in a manner that's axios, in a manner that's perfectly fit to that calling. Do you hear that? In other words, if your Christianity has all calling and, and you have you know this amazing understanding of what God has done, but there's no walking, it's out of balance. It's unfit, it's unworthy. But if, you're, if your Christianity has all walking and, and you're doing things for God and you're doing things for God, but you don't really know who you are in God and who he's called you to be. It's out of balance. It's unworthy. It's unfit. And so he, he balances this out where the second half of Ephesians is all about what it means to walk out that life that God has called us into. And the first thing that he does, this is amazing to me, the first place that he addresses is the church's unity. What, what does it mean to be a church that, that is unified across all these barriers that we come together to be one in a worthy manner, in, in a way that is fit with the calling that God has given us in Jesus? We could talk about that for hours, but I got 25 minutes. So here we go. How do we pursue unity in the church. Let's look first at the unity or the urgency of unity, the urgency of unity. If you're following along with me, look with me at verse one, verse one. He says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. See, Paul right here, he, he backs up and he reminds them once again of his chains, that he's a prisoner of the Lord. And and if you remember, he's already said that before. And and so he's kind of restarting because he got on a detour. He started to talk about uh, why he's in chains and how God is working through his pain. Uh, But now he kind of picks up his thought that he was coming out of in chapter two. And chapter two is all about unity. Chapter two is all about how God in Christ has come to break down the barriers that they had between the Jews and the Gentiles in their church. That he's brought down the the hostility, the the wall of hostility that was between the two of them. And because God has done that in Jesus, right? Because of Jesus' own blood that was shed to, to take away this hostility. Now Paul is saying, I urge you to live it out. In other words, what he's saying is, if God has gone, if he's done all of this, If he's gone to such lengths to to make sure we've been unified as his people, all of that has no purpose unless you walk it out. And he says, it's so urgent, I'm, I'm going to urge you to do it now. In other words, what he's saying is is this is not something that can wait. This is something that has to happen now. This is something you have to move towards. This this has to go from a thought or an idea or some kind of doctrine to action. It reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this. He says, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. Before the altar and go. He says, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is setting this in, in the context of temple worship, right? Like what could be more important than worshiping God? And he says, if you're there in the middle of the worship service and you're about to offer your gift, and you realize in the back of your mind there's there's something wrong between me and my brother. There's something wrong between me and another person. He says, drop your gift at the altar. Just stop. Don't wait any longer. Don't don't go do something. Don't don't think about it. Drop it and go take care of it. He's saying this is urgent. See, what Jesus was doing and what Paul is following Jesus in is he's saying whatever's going on in your life if, if unity is not all the way up to the top of the priority list, you're going to miss it. It has to be urgent. See, unity is not optional. It's urgent. It's urgent. A couple years ago, I had, a, um, I had an old Jeep Grand Cherokee. And it had like 300,000 miles on it. This, this thing was going and going and going. Every time I would take it into the mechanic for an oil change, they would, they would praise us for, how did you keep this thing alive? It's still going and it's doing all right. But, but they would also give me like this long list of all the things that were wrong with the car. I mean, and, and you know how it is, if you've got an old car, you, there's things you just don't care about. You, you, it's on the list, but the car's not worth anything, it's not, it's not a big deal, and so they'd give me the list, and I'd read through the 20 things, and I'd be like, you know what, let's not do any of that, just give me the oil change, and we'll move on. <laughs> but one time I went in, and the guy said, he said, look, I know you don't really like to do a lot for this car, and I wouldn't either, but this you need to take care of. He said, it looks like your serpentine belt Is about to go out. Now, if you know what a serpentine belt is, it's this long rubber belt that kind of winds through your engine, and it basically keeps everything moving, and it can wear down over time, and it it can have these little wears and cracks, and and if it gets old enough and bad enough, it can snap. And if it snaps while you're driving, it's dangerous, and it can can ruin the whole engine. And what would have cost just a couple hundred dollars to fix now cost you thousands if not the whole car and so it wasn't optional it was urgent i had to take care of it now see what jesus is saying and what paul is saying is disunity gets worse with waiting it gets worse with waiting and so he says i i urge you, do do this now, handle it, because the longer we let it go, it's going to get worse, there's going to be wear and tear, there's going to be cracks that show up, and, and if you keep letting it go, and you keep neglecting it, and avoiding it, eventually it's going to snap, and what would have been an issue that would have been smaller to deal with, now becomes this massive issue, because we waited too long. Now, listen, I know we're, we're all busy, right? I mean, we, we all got tons of things on the priority list. You got things to take care of with your family and your kids and, and your job, and you got things you want to do in your life and your career, whatever it may be. You got things on your list, And so there's a lot going on that we can kind of push things aside and push it aside and say, you know what, I'll take care of that later, and I don't really feel like that right now, or I need some more time, or whatever it is. And, And so we keep putting it away, and what Jesus and Paul are saying is to put this thing called unity all the way to the top, right? It needs urgent attention. And So I want to ask you today, who? Who do you need to go to? Who is it? I know some of you right now, there's a name that immediately popped into your mind. Or or if I just gave you a couple more minutes, you, you could think of a name or a couple names and people that you know, I need to go to that person. Right. I mean, it, it might be your teenager that you guys got in an argument a couple weeks ago and you, you never really got to talk through it. And so there's been this tension, there's been this coldness that you haven't really been able to deal with and, and you've been putting it off because you're not sure and, and you just know, I need to go talk to them. Right. It might be a coworker that instead of going to that person, you, you've been talking about that person to other folks right? You started to gossip and you started to kind of fester and, and get a little bit bitter about them. And, and your friends, they, they let you feel okay because they're, they're identifying with you and they know what it's like to be harmed or to be uh, you know, spoken against or whatever. But you know you need to go to them. Or it could be in your own marriage, right? It could be a word that was just harmful, hurtful, and, and, and you're not sure what to do with that, and you haven't said anything yet, but you know, I, I need to go talk to them. I need, I need to go deal with it. Whoever it is, whatever it is, God is inviting us in to say, it, the, the time is now. The, the time is to deal with it urgently. Really, and there's two ways that we, we try to delay this unity uh, denying and defending denying and defending. The first one, denying, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's real easy to downplay an issue, especially when you're your own counselor, right? You, you convince yourself it's not that big of a deal, and, and you kind of put it to the side and deny that it didn't really hurt that bad, or I, I don't really think it's that important, and so you, you just talk to yourself, and by, you know, a couple days or so, you're over it, but you never really dealt with it you just deny that it happened or deny how bad it really was. Yeah. And it's, it's usually out of our fear, right? That I, I don't, I'm afraid of what's going to happen, and so I'm afraid, and, and I'll, I'll withdraw rather than move towards because I don't know if I can handle that. So we deny. But the second thing is similar. It's defending. It's defending. And, and, and this is my favorite way to, to avoid things. I'll defend myself because they were the ones that did the wrong thing. And so they should be the ones that come to me rather than me be the one that goes to them. Right. And I'm so convinced that I'm in the right that I don't want to take the time or the effort to go make it right because that's on them. And so we defend and we defend and we, we we start to talk to ourselves as if I'm I'm the one who's who's better in this situation, but I'll never deal with it. I mean this is what he's saying is I, I'm urging you, urging you to go deal with the issue. So what will it look like if we actually do that? What what does it look like to go from doing nothing? to moving towards unity. How does that walk happen? This is the second point, the walk of unity. I love this. Look at verse 2. Look at what Paul says. He says, to do this, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I love this. This It's my favorite part of the passage. Paul gives us three attitudes, if you will. And and here's where they are. Stick with me for a second. The first is humility, right? And humility means this lowliness of mind. And someone has said before that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. You you hear that? What what it's saying is I'm not hating myself. I'm just not focused on myself. Humility is this sense that I'm focused on others rather than me, that they're the center, not me being the center, but it's not hating yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. And, and so this is what he says, humility, but then the next thing is gentleness or meekness in some translations. And meekness is, is this idea of strength under control. It's poised, it's, it's measured, it's, it's a sense of, I, I can handle this, but I'm not gonna be out of control. And then the last thing is patience or long suffering. And what that's saying is, is you're not in a hurry, but you're able to see the bigger picture you're able to see past the immediate pain and and you're patient in that process. And so these are the three attitudes he gives, but this is what I love. These attitudes don't stay with us. They they move through us. They become actions. And so then he gives us these two actions. uh, and, And this is what he says. First, he says, bear with one another in love. And the word literally means to esteem somebody or to celebrate somebody. So it's not just, I'm going to tolerate them because I have to and God told me to, but I'm going to esteem them. I'm going to celebrate them and and rejoice in who they are because that's who they are. There's good in them. And so I'm going to bear with them and esteem them. And, and, And then he says, secondly, eager to maintain unity. Some translations say, instead of eager, make every effort Do whatever you possibly can to maintain unity. Now, did you hear the contrast? Did did you hear the tension? This is what I love. He he says in one breath, "I I want you to go slow and bear with the person. And then in the very next breath, he says, I want you to be eager to do everything you possibly can to maintain unity. I mean, doesn't that sound contradictory? Doesn't it sound like you want me to go slow, but you want me to be eager and, and go after it? Which one is it, Paul? <laughs> I think it's the best picture you can get of what it means to pursue unity. It's both. It's both. See, listen, unity is uh, it, it's urgent with love, but, but it's unhurried with results. That'll change your life right there. It's, it's urgent with love, but, but it's unhurried with the results of your love. The, think about it this way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he, uh, he's famous for being a, a German theologian and pastor who, who uh, was part of the resistance against the Nazi regime. And, and uh, he's written a lot of modern classics. People love him. Uh, and, and he eventually was martyred for his resistance against uh, Hitler. Hitler. And uh, one of the lesser known parts of his life was that he actually came from Germany to America and spent some time here in America. And when he was here teaching at a seminary, he attended a predominantly black church, Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, and very historic, kind of prominent church. And and the pastor was well known, and he spent so much time in that community that it, it really transformed his view of so many things. He writes about it in his journals, and he says that it transformed his views of of social uh, activism, and it it transformed his views of what it means to love Jesus. And and one of the things that transformed was his idea of community. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer learned what it means to be a church community from the historic black church, and he took that back to Germany, and he started his own little seminary, and he started to kind of... uh, uh, kind of experiment, if you will, with what it means to be a community of people in the church. And he gathered all these ideas, and he wrote this classic on community from all these insights he gathered, and he called it Life Together. Life Together. And he writes some profound things about what it means to be the church. And one of these things I want to read to you, he says this, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself, become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may ever be so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Do you hear that? Well, what he's saying is is you take your idea of what the Christian community should be, and and you have these grandiose ideas, and, and you fall in love with those things, and because you love that so much, you actually destroy the community you love. What he's saying is you can, you can make even Christian community into an idol, right? The way we talk about it around here is an idol is taking any good thing and making it a God thing. And that could be any good thing, even community. You can take what God has designed the church to be and you turn it into something now you've worshiped. And it becomes the very thing that destroys the thing you love. Let me tell you how that works. The the way this happens is, is you start getting these ideas about what the church should be. Right? I mean, it, it's fashionable to, to critique the church. It, it's, it's all over social media, it's all over our, our, our churches and local churches, and, and you've got these these beautiful ideas, these beautiful pictures of what the church could be and should be, and, and most of them are backed up by scripture right? This is is what the scriptures describe for us to be. But then you take those things and and they're like weapons that you go try to fix every single problem you see. And so you're, you're eager, eager to maintain unity. And you want to fix that person and that person and this person and that problem and this person and that problem. And the way you can tell it's an idol is the problem becomes greater than the people you've now elevated all the problems you see to the highest level of significance. And the people are at the bottom. And what Paul is saying is, I want you to be eager, but I want you to bear with the people that you're going to. This is so hard. I'm telling you, that's why this is an incredible vision for what community could be, because what he's saying is, I want you to be urgent and unhurried. I want you to be urgent. I want you to deal with it. Don't don't pretend like the problem's not there. I want you to go to the person and talk to them and and deal with whatever it is, but when you go to them, go unhurried, knowing that the person you're talking to is just like you. The person you're talking to is, is a fellow sinner who changes at the pace that you change at, which is slow. And so when you go to the people that you've got problems with or they've got problems with you, he's saying, I want you to, I want you to esteem them. I want you to, to celebrate them and bear with them slowly because they're just like you. So I asked you, who, who uh, do you need to go to? Who, who are you in a hurry with? Who are you in a hurry with? I mean, hurry, think about it. Hurry is pride in motion. Hurry is, is pride with movement. It's evidence that we want to go faster than the pace of Jesus. We, we want to go faster, and, and, and we, we want to go quickly, and, and we want to see things transformed. But, but let me ask you, a hard question what what if they never change what if what if the person you're thinking of never changes can you still bear with them in love can you still bear with them because i think you and i we have such a hard time with this because we're, we're in a hurry with other people because we think so highly of ourselves we, we think so, so highly that I can change and I can do this and, I, and, and, and because we're, we're not self-aware of, of really how much we struggle with our own brokenness, our own sin, our own, our own failures. And, and if we were able to see that, if we were able to go with them being aware of our own failures, we'd be able to easily say, oh, of course you're, you're taking forever. Of course this hasn't changed in a decade. I can give you a list of all the things that I haven't changed in a decade. But it's so hard. It's so hard to hold these two together, to say, out of love, I'm going to move towards you. I'm not going to let this go unaddressed. But when I get to you, I'm going to be unhurried, and we're going to walk slowly together in this, and we're going to be gracious to one another, and we're going to forgive one another, and we're going to be patient with how Painful it's going to be because this is the way we've been loved. This is the way we've been loved. See, what's our hope when we do that? Uh, This is the last thing. I got to move quickly. Uh, The third point is the oneness of unity. The oneness of unity. Look at verse 4. Paul goes on to say this There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, it seems a little odd that Paul kind of transitions to a theological lesson. In in fact, some scholars believe that this is actually an ancient creed or confession of the early church because it's so poetic and and put together beautifully in in rhythm and and all these things. And, And you have seven ones here. Seven ones. One, 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 one. One is emphatic. He's, he's trying to communicate something. He's saying that, that this, this number one is, is, is coming from their, their historical uh, reality. The, the oldest confession of the Jewish faith was the Shema, which, which was this oneness of God. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Like, this is basic faith for the Jewish person, and and he's drawing on that to say there's one true God, but he does it in a fascinating way. This one true God is also the triune God. He says there's one Spirit, one Lord Jesus, one Father. Again, why, why is Paul giving us a theological lesson in the middle of this talk on unity? Here's what he's doing. He's rooting our unity in God's own unity. What he's saying is, for all eternity, God has existed as one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. He's lived in this perfect community, this perfect unity, one with the other, perfect patience, perfect humility, perfect gentleness, right? This is who God is. In perfect love, he's existed forever, and he's invited us into that unity John Stott says it this way. He says, the unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. He is no, or It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. That's what Paul's saying. He, he's saying that our oneness is rooted in his oneness. His oneness is what secures our oneness. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he he uh, took his disciples up into the upper room, right? And they're going to celebrate the Passover meal for the last time. And Jesus is with his disciples, whom he'd been with for three years. Day after day after day, he's teaching them, he's leading them, he's loving them, he's, he's spending all this time with them. And you would think that after three years of every day with Jesus in the flesh, they would be in a better place, right? And here they are with their final meal with the Savior, and they're fighting. They're about as disunified as you can have. I mean, they're arguing about who's the best. They're complaining about where they're sitting. They're arguing back and forth. And so after the meal and all this arguing and all the unity that's not being shown, Jesus starts to pray for them. And you have the prayer... In John 17, people call it the high priestly prayer. And Jesus starts to pray for the disciples. And he he prays for their hearts. And he prays for the Father's glory. And he prays that the Father would provide for them and care for them. And then he begins to pray for their unity. But as Jesus is praying and the disciples are overhearing it, it must have been a powerful moment and a confusing moment when he starts to not just pray for them, but he prays for us. That's right. Jesus prayed for you and for me, for his whole church that would come. This is what he says. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, listen, that they may all be one. Jesus looked into the halls of history all down the line, and he saw our division. He saw our hatred. He saw our hostility. He saw our apathy. He saw all the things that we we didn't want to deal with. He saw our racism. He he saw our our anger. He, He saw all these things. And he knew that the oneness that was going to be required was going to require everything from him. It would tear him apart. You can see it on the cross, in the flesh. I mean, Jesus was led that night to to the cross like a lamb to the slaughter, and he was delivered over to the Roman soldiers who literally stripped down the skin of his back and separated the skin. He was crowned with thorns that split apart the flesh of God. He was nailed with holes that, that put separation in his very hands. He was pierced in his side to separate his side, right? All the way to his very last breath. And the separation that he felt in his body was nothing compared to what he felt in his soul. Jesus being separated from his heavenly father for the first time in all eternity, he cries out to his father, where are you? You've forsaken me. He he feels it at the depths of his soul that in order to bring us together, he'd have to be torn apart. But in becoming sin for us, our guilt, our shame, our violence, our corruption, our hatred, our fears, he took our place in the very hostility of God. The sin that separated us from God couldn't be ignored. It couldn't be denied. It had to be dealt with. It had to be paid for. And so Jesus was killed on the cross to kill the hostility in the church. Our oneness cost it, cost him it all. And so in Killing the Hostility, he was creating this new unity. It was all to bring us near. It was to create one new family, one family from every tribe, one family from every tongue, one family from every nation, one family that would bring him glory for eternity, one family that was confounding the world with our love across borders, One family that would confuse the politicians and the rulers that we would love across these barriers. One family that would seem to the outside world an impossibility because it was. But God does the impossible. Our oneness is secure in Him, the one true God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And and listen, as we close, what, what he's calling us into, what, what he's inviting us into as we pursue unity is to walk out what we already have. He says, I, I've already done this. The proof is is that God has purchased all these things according to who he is. He's done it. Now we we have to live in a way that walks it out. In a way that's that's a perfect fit with the calling that He's called us to, He says, I I want you to walk like that. I I want you to live in the grace and the unity and the love that I've made for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we prepare our hearts for the table, we realize that this table that we're about to partake in is is the image of what you have us uh, headed towards. That we one day dine together with all the people that you've redeemed and brought into your new heavens and new earth, and we will sit around the table as one. We will sit around the table as every single person who's been purchased by the Lamb's blood. And so this table is is such a perfect picture of what it means for us to to now start celebrating and rejoicing and living out what's already the reality. And so God, we ask for your forgiveness, that you would forgive us for our disunity, forgive us for our fears and our prides that, that, that have kept us apart, forgive us for our apathy and and the ways that we've neglected things, whatever it may be, God, forgive us and give us the power in your spirit to move forward with eagerness and grace, with patience and love. And that, God, we would be the people who receive the same because it is what we have received from you. You've been so eager to help us, so eager to love us, and yet so patient in your love. And we're grateful, forever grateful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.